0: Hey everyone, Rob here, and what you're about to hear is one of the final episodes of the Crooked Table podcast. Don't worry, I'm not going anywhere, but the show in its current form is coming to an end. Still, from the ashes of the Crooked Table podcast will rise the era of Crooked Table Productions. Starting this summer, we'll be launching three brand new shows. These include Showstoppers, a seasonal show spotlighting two actors. In this first season, my lovely wife, Kai, and I will shine a light on the careers of Jim Carrey and Drew Barrymore. Franchise Detours, wherein a guest and I will discuss the many twists and turns of a popular movie series, including our upcoming mega-series on the Child's Play movies. And finally, this feed will transform into Close Watch with Robert Yannis Jr., in which I get to know a guest through the prism of a movie they love. But that's all coming up. For now, let's listen in for one of the final times to The Crooked Table Podcast. Welcome to The Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yanis Jr. Welcome to The Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this episode, Jason from Binge Movies joins us to discuss Martin Scorsese's 1990 classic gangster film, Goodfellas. And this is also the final episode of the show before the feed shifts over to Close Watch with Robert Yannis Jr. I think for a while, I'm going to keep uh, on the listing for this uh, for this feed. Close Watch, formerly a Crooked Table podcast, but that's essentially what we're going to turn into very soon here. Uh, it will, as stated... Uh, the, uh, at the top of the show, it will be kind of a tweaked or like a more fine-tuned version of this premise that you're going to hear in this episode with Jason and that you've heard for the last hundred or so episodes. But yeah, just stay tuned for that. Don't be alarmed when the, when the music and, and the uh, format changes somewhat in the uh, next episode in the next couple of weeks. But for now, enjoy this episode with Jason from Binge Movies and I talking about Goodfellas. Welcome back to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this episode, we're going to be talking about the 1990 uh, crime drama, Goodfellas, and I am honored to welcome to the show, Jason from Binge Movies. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here.
0: So, uh, i so glad that you, you uh, the dark movie overlords let you, <laughs> uh, let you make it out of the, the dungeon for this recording, or, or is this recording from the dungeon? Like, what's going on?
1: My life is in the dungeon. No, I'm, I'm coming <laughs> to you live, uh, or, or live to tape, at least, as your listeners are hearing this, and um, from the brim closet in uh, Binge Movies, uh, Akron, Ohio. Uh, that's where I live. That's where I sleep. That's where I record the podcast uh, with uh, a variety of guests. Uh, you're going to be on one of our upcoming episodes in the not-too-distant future, and we had a great conversation. Um, looking forward to that finally dropping here fairly soon. Um, and yeah, I'm joined usually by a producer slash uh, shell stalker, Combat Jones, the, the good reverend Combat Jones, um, and uh, a variety of guests and, and uh, some that I, I know that have been on your show. And uh, a lot of people that we, we travel in similar circles on uh, hashtag mm-hmm. film Twitter. Uh, the the film Twitterati, I guess, is what it's called. Uh, so a lot of your listeners would probably be familiar with uh, some of the folks we have on, uh, including yourself. So, yeah, it always comes from the, the the closet, you know, which gets cramped, you know, when the guests actually are flown in by the dark movie overlords. It gets a little tight in that closet because it's sure. there's so many crates of of McNamee VHS tapes, uh, which is primarily my bedding. Um, it just, it can get really tight summertime. It's a sweat box, but, uh, tonight it's just me. And, uh, due to, uh, the current, uh, pandemic, uh, you're, you're in Florida and I'm in Akron, Ohio, and here we are via the magic of the internet.
0: Here we are. Yeah. As you, and I think we, we talked about on your show as people will be hearing soon that, uh, Florida kind of, kind of the stealth center of film, Twitter in, yes. a, in a very strange and bizarre way.
1: Every third film podcaster or film critic or aspiring Rotten Tomatoes uh, slug line writer is from Florida. and not just Florida, they're all Gulf Coast, which the I l- listen, I've traveled all over Florida for many, many years uh, at least a, at least once a year in non-pandemic conditions when I've been allowed to um you know by the dark movie overlords and the gulf coast is the best coast hands down uh the atlantic side uh no offense to any of your listeners over there but boy i just i just don't i man, i don't get the appeal of that i don't get the appeal when you have white sand beaches you got the sticky sugar sand of uh of the panhandle area the sort of some people would call it uh, the Hillbilly Riviera, you know, your Destin's, your Miramar's coming all the way down to your Clearwaters, your Tampa's and your St. Pete's, and then further down. Uh, I mean, it's just gorgeous. So, I mean, you know, if you've got to live in Florida, you might as well live in paradise. That's that's,
0: that's a good point. And yet, yet everyone is, I guess, trying to get away from the heat. Hence, we're all running inside to record podcasts. I wonder if that's part of
1: it. I think that's it. It's
0: all (laughs) seeking, seeking refuge in movie theaters or our home recording studios.
1: That's exactly right. I think that's what it is. is I think the reason why movies are so popular in the Gulf coast area and Florida in general is that, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very large air conditioned uh, space uh, full of entertainment and yeah, you can get out of the humidity, get out of the heat, you get out of the uh, pesky snowbirds and tourists and, uh, uh, obese Ohioans <laughs> coming down and taking up, you know, uh, too much of your, too much of your, uh, uh, your, your space in the Publix or Winn-Dixie line, which is a good question. Are you a Publix guy? You Win dixie guy. Uh, what are you? I'm a Publix guy, but it's kind of hard
0: not to be because there's literally a Publix like every yeah. mile, every square mile, there's at least one Publix. Uh, it, it's, it's gotten, I've been living here in Tampa since 89 so i've been here like i'm not a native floridian but i kind of am a native floridian at this point by by uh by default and the amount of publics when i when i was a kid we had cash and carry publics food line albertson's winn dixie now it's basically Publix and a couple winn dixies here and there
1: and a whole foods uh, every now and again you guys have some now
0: we got whole foods and sprouts and uh, a couple others upstarts trying to encroach on Publix's territory and Publix is not having it.
1: No, Publix has got you on lockdown for reward. sure. Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely, absolutely. Yep. Uh, so before we get into Goodfellas, I I wanted to try and feel you out. So give people a little taste of. I know you're as of this recording about to start season five point two. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Can you give us a, a little a little uh, preview of what's what's ahead <laughs> for for listeners?
1: Um Well, you know, what we do on our show is we have a variety of different episode types. The bulk of what we do is four times a year, we have a season. Uh, so, you know, like you said, we've already done 5.1. It's our fifth year, the first season of our fifth year. And now we're getting ready to launch the second season of our fifth year. And we we binge about 30 episodes, 30 films, 25 to 30 films. It 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 varies. From everything from major franchises to classic films to schlock cult movies to nostalgic favorites to art house to anything. And our main objective is as assigned to us is to, with our guests, try to pare that list down to the singular best film of that particular season and the best film of every season, as eventually voted on by our listeners on Twitter at binge movies uh, goes into the vault to be preserved for all time. And that's what the show is mostly about. We're trying to determine which films are the most worthy of preservation for all time, not just based on the merit of the film itself, but what do they represent as far as genre or legacy, or, you know, how do they help round out the, the full horizon spectrum of a film canon and film history? So if all the world's movies were to be eliminated tomorrow, what would you want in a vault. And uh, that's what we're doing. We're trying to preserve uh, uh, the best of the best of the best. Now that could be a genre film that could be something like parasite, which we've, we added last year into the vault. That could be, it could be anything could be foreign language. It could be something that the Academy awards would never honor, or it could be something that, you know, would maybe win best picture, uh, or it could be a Marvel movie, or it could be really anything because we're trying to collect uh, the, the best of film film culture. So, yeah, as it comes out, we're, we're continuing uh, season 5.2, a uh, uh, retrospective of the 1990s. We're doing a top-grossing films of the 1990s, uh, top 10 for every year, which is obviously 100 films. And uh, we're getting very, very close. You're going to appear on one of those episodes. And we had a very, very interesting conversation about uh, some... Much beloved 90s films. So it's it's uh I think that's for your listeners, I think that's the one to look out for. But like I said, we cover every genre. I said on one podcast one time and it kind of stuck. We cover um everything from the Tommy Wiseau's to the Bong joon Ho's. We cover nice. the full spectrum of of film genre and film quality. Uh and uh yeah, we keep pushing the boundaries of, of what you can talk about. It's newer films, it's older films, it's everything in between. When we're not doing that, we're doing deep dive reviews, we're doing, you know, uh, interviews with filmmakers, we're doing all kind of stuff. So uh, we're just churning out content nonstop to keep our listeners happy, just like you do.
0: Nice, nice. You know, Jason, right before we started recording, we were talking about uh, the theatrical experience and how it's changed mm-hmm. since since we were kids and all of that. I was born in '83, so I have to tell you, I was very happy to hear Men in Black put into the vault because uh, <laughs> that was a huge movie for me when I was 14. All listening to Will Smith's music, all of his movies, so I was very happy to see the the Lady Wan uh, save that one for for all time and beyond the end times.
1: Yeah, that's it, man. So at the end of the season, we have something called Last Movie Standing, where we bring on um, film critics and film podcasters. Most of them are Floridians. <laughs> yeah, and we yeah, bring them much. on, and, over. and we, yeah, you guys are taking over, and and we have uh, like a, a debate format. It's 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 uh it's like a trial, right? And you have uh, two attorneys, but they're film critics and they're debating the merits of their film, why their film, uh, you know, is the most worthy of preservation. So essentially, you know, as we go along each week's episode, the guest picks a best, uh, best film and I pick a best film. And in the end, uh, the best of the best square off what we call the the short list, which is mine and the guest list, which is obviously the guest. And, uh, we get two film critics or podcasters or YouTubers or influencers or whoever, somebody with some film knowledge and they have to build a case often on the fly for, you know, they get to select their number one movie off of that list that they inherit and they go, they go up against each other. And then we, we offer it up, the jury, right? The, the judge, the jury, and the final decider are our listeners. And that's the movie that goes into the vault. And so lady one came on, And uh, showing up against a good friend of the show, Paul, from the Countdown uh, movie and TV reviews podcast, who's not from Florida. He's Australian, which is basically the Florida of the South Pacific. I was going to say. Yeah. Just as many (laughs) beaches and just as many criminals and just as many poisonous, uh, poisonous animals. Uh, uh, They're more croc than gator, obviously. But I mean, six of one half a dozen of another, right? Yeah. Tomatoes,
0: tomato. Exactly. (laughs)
1: Right. Uh, so we had a Florida gator versus a crocodile hunter and uh, she wiped the floor with our good friend, Paul. And to our surprise, the thing is like, it's not rigged. It really is like whatever, based on the arguments for whoever comes on and based on what our audience believes about those movies, that's what goes into the vault. So uh, it feels a little risky because you never know exactly what's going to end up in there. And you never know, we never know what our our guests at the end of the season uh, during last movie standing, I don't know what they're going to pick. I, I, it's all real time. It's all, I'm just responding to it in the moment. And uh, those are fun episodes as well. And uh yeah, so men in black is officially in, and that was, a, it was a bit of an upset. It was a bit of a surprise, but um I think I I I would tend to agree with the binge lords, our listeners. I think it I think it is worthy of preservation as a genre film for sure and a and a blockbuster.
0: Yeah, and the fact that it has has withstood three vastly inferior sequels, <laughs> and yet people yes. are still like, oh, man in black, that movie's great. It hasn't really you'd think it would have tarnished the first one in some way, but not really. We just ignore the rest and go back to uh to the first one.
1: You're exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah, hundred percent. It's that first movie. I was surprised. I haven't seen it in a long time. I watched it, and it held up remarkably well. So you're you're hundred percent on the money. And yeah, you have these vastly inferior sequels, and it, it's it's almost as if they don't even exist in a weird way. And I've seen them all, and it's yeah. just it, it, when you have a movie like that, which is essentially a franchise now, and the first one is kind of untouched by the mediocrity to terribleness of its. Uh, of those that, that followed it. Um, yeah, that, that, I think that shows the strength of the film all exactly. the way around. Yep.
0: hundred percent. So I don't think Goodfellas is in the vault yet, but, uh, <laughs> no, we've I'm never assuming covered this it. This would be one that you would, you would, uh, you would campaign for, for including there as well.
1: Yeah. I, you know, the challenge is, uh, I, I relish the opportunity to come on your show. I love what you do. And, uh, you're a great podcaster and, uh, you're very soothing. You have a very soothing presence about you. Oh, thanks. Uh,
0: <laughs>
1: I wish tell tell my four year
0: old that when I'm trying to get her to go to sleep.
1: Right, and uh, I just I enjoy you know just listening to you. I enjoy the the very like uh, just very real conversations you have with people and the smart questions you ask. That's great questions. And you're like, well, what would you like to talk about? And obviously, you've had a lot of episodes so far and you've had a wide variety of guests. And so a lot of ground has been covered, but Goodfellows had not yet been talked about, uh, at least in this context on your show. But what do you say about a movie that is pretty much universally loved and um, was kind of an instant classic and is a a peak in its, in its subgenre of, of the mobster movie or the gangster movie? You know, it's between this and and the, the the first and second Godfather that, you know, may be a Scarface, but I mean, I, I don't really think so. I think it's really the debate, of course, with cinephiles is what's better, Godfather, Godfather 2, or Goodfellas. And
0: mm-hmm. then, of
1: course, you have Scorsese at the helm, probably, I, I would argue, at the peak of his powers. Um, I think a lot of what he does after this, be it Casino or even Wolf of Wall Street, feels redundant it feels like it feels like riffing yeah. on the same you know, major just chords. About to,
0: you, you use the exact word i was gonna say it's it's like him riffing on on the uh the themes and the styles mm-hmm. that that he kind of uh, introduced with this one
1: so the challenge is like what do we talk about here because your listeners are probably like yeah good fellows it's a it's a darn near perfect film if not perfect um and i i i don't want to steer the conversation way off the rails too quickly but I think other than maybe Silence, I think Goodfellas is maybe the most Catholic movie uh, that Scorsese's ever made. And I, I I, think it may be the peak of the careers of everybody involved. You know, Paul Sorvino is basically play, played a version of the, his character in this the rest of his life. And not that he hadn't played yeah. gangsters before, but he pretty much plays Pauly the rest of his life. Um, this was such a pop-cultural... It wasn't just a cinephile thing. It was such a, a monocultural thing. It was in the consciousness that even in Animaniacs, they had a parody of it <laughs> with I the was, pigeons.
0: I had a specific note about that because, yeah when, yeah, when this came out in 1990, I was seven. So I did not yeah. see this for a long time. Um, but I, I even then, I had the understanding that Good Feathers was kind of a parody of, of Good Feathers. They had the god pigeon that yep. was... That was part of it is a Marlon Brando as a pigeon, basically. Uh, so, yeah, totally. That was that was weirdly my point of reference for Goodbellas, uh
1: most of my life. <laughs> I don't think but seriously, though, I mean, like we're not that far off in age. And I think yeah. I mean, this is this is a hard R movie and um, it doesn't shy away from, you know, I mean, it's been accused like some of his other work of of glorifying the, the the Italian mob lifestyle and glorifying violence, and I think that's that is part of the appeal of the movie. But if you're not paying attention, the first half, maybe even three quarters of this movie, are really almost like a dream sequence. I mean, even how the movie opens, it's it's basically a cold open, and we just enter mid-action. And all of this horrific violence happens to this guy in a trunk and then pause. And, and as long as I can remember, I've always wanted to be a gangster. And from that moment forward, we're in the perspective of uh, Ray Liotta's character, which is tangentially based on a real person and his real experience. But it, of course, it's idealized and dreamlike because he's reminiscing fondly about sort of the golden era of his life. He's he's as that movie opens up, you know, that's exactly what's happening. It it, it he encountered the mob when he was a kid, you know, and so mm-hmm. it gives us that perspective of a child. He's somebody who, at a very young age, Henry Hill resented his family, resented his parents, his Irish dad, his Italian mom, looked across the street, saw the Italian mafia running and controlling the neighborhood, if not the entire city, saw the power, saw the wealth, saw the respect that he didn't have, his family didn't have, his dad didn't have, and lusted after it. And going back to the Catholicism, you know, that's a theme in a lot of Scorsese's work. But, you know, I think one of the central ideas in this movie is is temptation and it's also seeing and desiring and not to go like super biblical or whatever, but uh, that is the, that's the garden story, right? Is that, you Mm -hmm. know, Eve saw that the fruit was good and and beautiful, right? It was, it was attractive and it was good for eating. And so she wanted it. And then here comes the serpent is like, Hey, you should have that. There's no reason why you couldn't have that. The only reason, you know, God doesn't want you to have those because, he knows you'd be like him. Your eyes would be open, so you should go get that. And that's a reoccurring theme within biblical text, and, and not just biblical, but religious text in general, is the idea of seeing, lusting, coveting after, and taking something, taking knowledge for yourself, taking power for yourself, uh, and you know all these sorts of things. And, and the havoc that that wreaks on your life, and obviously like it's a you know the, the archetypal story of a fall, um, paradise Lost, all that sort of stuff. And that's really what's going on here, right? Is that every time Henry has a way almost out of the life that he's in, even when Paulie's like, look, I don't care what you do. You went to jail. You know, you had to do what you had to do to make ends meet while you're in there. I get it. But now that you're out, I don't want you touching the drugs. I don't want you doing them. I don't want you selling them. But he sees <laughs> the potential for money and he lusts after it. And so he takes it, right? And there's a deception and and all of these relationships are destroyed because and even you know Karen his his wife uh, or his eventual wife played by Lorraine Bracco you know is a is uh kind of an innocent until you know she sees with her eyes that that famous one shot through the club and and mm-hmm. Um, you know uh, Frankie Valley or whoever is up there singing and you know there's he's a contractor but yet he's in this swanky club you know in a beautiful suit and they bring a table out where there wasn't a table and set it for him and he's just dropping 50s and 20s and 100s and people's you know breast pockets and uh, she sees all of that and she's enamored with it and then when she sees his violence against the guy who, who tried to sexually assault her, the, the neighbor boy, um, she's, she's like, the line is like, I know most people would be freaked out, but I'm not going to lie. It turned me on. Right. And so there's this idea of like, there, you see the power, you see the money, you see the wealth, you see the, 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 the violence even. And the violence is interpreted as, as power and as strength. And you see it, and it, instead of repelling you, it draws you into temptation, which ultimately leads to destruction. Which is the second half of the movie. They see this giant bank heist, or not even the airport heist. And you know, not to get into spoilers, if, if people mm-hmm. haven't seen it, but you know, everybody it's associated with that heist ends up either dead or in prison. Um, and most of them end up dead. Be, and 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 what's their sin as far as James Conway, uh, aka Robert De Niro's perspective is they're spending the money and they're doing this, and then he sees the money for himself and decides he's going to screw people over and take it for himself. And you know, it's just this reoccurring sort of looping theme all the way through it. You know, um, I, I like I said, I don't want to go so far off the rails into yeah, yeah, you know, film criticism 101, but that is that's that's the on the surface, it's just a really energetic, charming. Um, intoxicating, funny, scary, thrilling mobster movie. But I think there's some really deep themes working within it that uh, I think Scorsese is bringing to the table. I don't know if it's in the text. I don't think it's in the book of which this was loosely based. Uh, Henry Hill's memoirs. I think it is, he's bringing it because we see that kind of th- that thought in the rest of his work, right? So mm-hmm.
0: yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're spot on with pretty much all of that. I think the, this movie is all about like, you were sort of mentioning temptation and the, the price of uh, this kind of success uh, and kind of how it's, it's tainted from the get go. And yeah, like this is, is obviously was heavily kind of criticized by some people for its violence. It's uh it's language. It has like a, one at the time, the most F bombs of <laughs> Any mm-hmm. movie, and then so I think now uh, Wolf of Wall Street is like number three. Something right. I just read, and um, <laughs> so Scorsese is outdoing himself. But both of those films that they they are accused of romanticizing that lifestyle, but it's like you said, it's that's the only way that the the story works. It's mm. I, I just did an episode of uh, piecing it together with David Rosen. Yeah, and, I've been on there.
1: It's great, great guy. Yeah, exactly. David's great guy, we Great just, show. And we,
0: Yeah, definitely. People listen to him as well. Uh, And we just talked about the father and that movie works because it tries to put you in the head of Anthony Hopkins character. And just the same way Scorsese's whole mission statement here is, is to draw you in to, to dazzle you with the, yeah, with the power, with the, uh, the glamor and uh, you know, and the violence that, that, that comes with when you're, when you are in this, uh, in, you know, working within organized crime and living this life, and then contrasting that and sort of breaking it down uh, when it's when it all inevitably falls apart, and uh, I really, I really latched onto what you were saying about this being a very Catholic movie. I was raised Catholic, so I a hundred percent see that in he in this movie, the uh, the kind of you know the the original sin of it all, mm-hmm. and this is a film that. You know, I'd heard for years was was so was so beloved, and I I just I didn't really see it that much growing up because I think you know uh, my mom's side of the family is Italian, so there was a certain at a certain point like this was the kinds of this was like my you know my aunt's favorite movie or all mm-hmm. these everything with De Niro and Pacino and that was like her genre the uh, the Godfather movies this one Casino and like pretty much that entire Johnny Donny Brosco things like that too, uh, so I think I kind of had a a built-in hesitation to really get into that because I was like I don't need to watch that to let me know that it's not a good life for me to pursue. <laughs> <Right. laughs> it's kind of my mindset. When right. we, you know when did you first see Goodfellas and what was your sort of initial imp- impression? Is it something that was around you a lot growing up or? Or that you uh, just kind of sought out
1: on your own later on. You know, you know, my mom is Italian and uh, is Southern Italian, and um, so, but ironically, like uh, what I'll say is, some of the events in this movie uh, or movies like this have uh, depicted a lifestyle that is not unfamiliar to certain people uh, <laughs> <laughs> on certain sides of the family, but I had no direct connection or involvement nor nor did my mom so it wasn't like I grew up in a a uh stereotypical like what you know uh Italian flag in the front yard right uh you know plastic on the furniture uh, <laughs> environment with Sunday sauce or gravy depending on what you're making and what region you're from mm-hmm. um I I you know I it was that it wasn't the the primary culture that i grew up with it was there but it wasn't the primary culture and certainly the elements that were there were not just like mobster movies uh you know as as you know there's more to italian americans than just mobster of movies course. of course despite our representation in hollywood so so i didn't grow up with this one i it was it was something i remember my parents renting and being not allowed to watch and then I was. What's ironic is most most movies, even movies I don't even like, even mediocre movies. People joke on the show that I have this like uh, uh, savant recall for exactly where I was the first time I ever saw any movie. I don't remember the first time I saw Goodfellas. I think part of that is what we were getting at, which is it was it just permeated so much of the culture. Yeah. yeah. It was, It was like. To a lesser extent because it came later, in the same way that everybody had a Marlon Brando impression from The Godfather, make him an offer he can't refuse, all this sort of stuff. Everybody had a Joe Pesci impression. Everybody knows that scene. Like, what what, do I amuse you? Am I a clown? What's funny? What why am I so funny?
0: It it was on Animaniacs constantly, though, too. That's the other thing. Like, and and I watch that now, Animaniacs with my daughter. And I'm watching the Good Feather sketches, and I'm like who is this for? Because if you're watching <laughs> this as a kid, I hope yes. you don't know what Goodfellas is. Yeah. So it's, it's like, it's, it's because the joke of that is they're the Goodfellas. It, yes. That's the, like that's it. There's no more to it. They're the pigeons are like gangsters and that's the, the but yes, it was everywhere.
1: What's amazing it, though, is he, the people who did the voiceover of the pigeons did a pretty good job sounding yeah. oh, like yeah. De Niro, Leota and Pesci. Yeah. Um, so it's very yeah. strange. Yeah, you're right. But I think that's sort of a call back to the the, the Looney Tunes commercials where they would have, you know, Humphrey Bogart show up or, or, or some parody of whatever was contemporary Hollywood at the time. And obviously Looney Tunes in its original format was not necessarily intended for kids. Mm. A lot of them were theatrical first and were essentially like interstitials in between double features. Uh, is how they started or or pre-movie rather than showing you uh that coca-cola commercial where everybody's dancing in or levi commercial everybody's dancing around their jeans uh they would show you uh looney tunes or or some kind of short or something and i think that was sort of in the tradition of like let's take a a modern movie and and incorporate it but yeah to your point like it just had to be because, like, twenty or thirty-year-old writers who were loved Martin Scorsese thought that that movie was awesome and decided to throw it into a kid show. How that got right. past the censors, I don't know, <laughs> because or or, or the or the network. Because if I'm at the network, I'm going like you. Who is this for? Like a five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old may v- vaguely get the references, but they they, Lord willing, have not seen the movie. Mm-hmm. So I don't have a distinct memory of the first time I saw it. I know that it was on cable because it was it's just something that's always aired on on cable in my lifetime. I think eventually at some point it was on a premium network, probably late high school, maybe even into early college. And that's when I saw it completely uncensored. And that's when I got all the F-bombs and the drug. You know, like usage. Night and day,
0: I would imagine. <laughs>
1: very much so wow
0: this is the movie my goodness yeah
1: yeah basically yeah and and, and the thing is like now uh when uh, if you take like wolf of wall street it'll appear on tv every once in a while and um like on fx or something wherever they air it and um they just sort of drop out the sound you know they just it just they just drop out the sound they don't try to necessarily change as much of the dialogue and they will just like put a commercial where you know some kind of a three-way was or some highly sexualized scene, or they'll digitally add in a bikini on Margot Robbie or something. Right. And it's very noticeable, but it's nowhere near as noticeable as what you and I grew up with, which is they would hack the movies to death where yeah. they would, they would have dub in somebody that didn't even remotely sound like Joe Pesci. Cause every other word out of Joe Pesci's mouth is, is an F bomb. And so they dub in, you know, all kind of random stuff. And when they're not dropping extreme profanity, there's racial slurs, there's, there's ethnic slurs. I mean, the bottom line is these are not good people in any conceivable way. Um, But we have to be charmed by them first to understand the allure of this world so that when we're reviled by them, including Henry later on, Uh, And we see them all as just these disgusting monsters that it it, it only has the efficacy. If we're, we're seduced by it, just like Henry was at first. And yeah, seeing it on cable, it did not have that same impact because (laughs) (laughs) you know, it, 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 the first part was kind of all right. Like you cut in a weird way, seen on cable kind of made it more, uh, glorifying that I think I think Scorsese's entire intent, especially where this movie ends, is to not glorify it. Is to take you right. on a journey so that you're repulsed yep. by what you see, but yet you understand. I understand why this character can be tempted because I'm tempted, right? I'm tempted to be in the mob if this is what it is, and then you see what it really is underneath the the surface, and it's 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 miserable. But I think the second half, in particular where it gets very graphic and, and very uh, intense, when that's hacked to pieces on cable, it kind of loses its sting. And so all you have is them walking around and going into nightclubs and really cool shots. And it's just a really cool movie um, that's really like just all the charm and none of the um, none of the sin because they've cut all the sin out. And so I think in a weird way, censoring it ended up actually glorifying <laughs> the thing that they were trying to censor. So when I finally saw it unedited, I fully got, like you said, like I actually saw the movie and I got the full impact and it instantly became, uh, it's hard to say. I know, I'm sure you've been asked like, what's your favorite movie of all time? It changes. It's a tier. It's a spectrum. It's not necessarily right. a film. This is definitely up there. It's got to be within my top five. If, you know, if not my number one, I just, it's, it's phenomenal. And so if maybe your listeners have only ever seen it on cable, do yourself a favor and rent it. Or if it's on Netflix or something, watch it unedited. It's a different experience.
0: It's also, I think, you know, you need to kind of keep in mind the context of when this came out. This is 1990. This is before uh, everyone on the internet was just like, oh, Martin Scorsese only makes mob movies. Look at all, look at all the range Marvel does. And I love Marvel oh movies God. too, but it's like, come on now. Oh, uh, this was the defining, you know, the archetypal modern gangster movie, like everything else after this. I mean, I I love, uh, you know, Hustlers and not to diminish that movie or its filmmaking, but it's clear this was an influence stylistically. It follows a very similar sort of format, uh, as well as, as we were mentioning, The Wolf of Wall Street and all these other movies where it's, it's the narration, it's the flashy filmmaking, it's the, you know, the pop music and all that stuff that, needle drops yeah breaking yeah, the fourth exactly. wall Needle drops I, like crazy Sympathy yep. for the devil every five seconds in every movie <laughs> <laughs> well Departed i heard it even kind of does that to a degree
1: yes well i think the thing is is that when when people think of him they think of mob movies but you look over his filmography and you look at you know him as director before Before this and at least as far as like his major theatrical films not just like smaller independent art house movies or little things he made here and there you know he really breaks onto to the the scene with something like uh, mean streets and then eventually you know taxi driver and then raging bull and but then you in there you have the king of comedy you have after hours you have uh, he does a couple of documentaries. He does a Michael Jackson video short. He does a sequel to The Hustler, which I talked about on Real Spoilers uh, a while ago. Uh, he does, you know, it's Color of Money. So he's doing a Tom Cruise, you know, early movie, uh, basically, you know, a studio film. It's He was hired to do it. It wasn't a passion project. It was a, it was a, a, for lack of a better term, a franchise film, right? Yeah. Um, you know, then like he's doing the Michael Jackson Pet, then he's doing The Last Temptation of Christ. Once again, there's the Catholicism, too much controversy. Then he does Goodfellas. What's he followed up with Cape Fear? You know, and then a little while later, you know, he does a couple more little documentaries, and then he comes back with Casino in the mid 90s. And so, when you really look over his full what he directed, he's got, like you said, uh, uh Shutter Islands in there. Uh the the mob stuff is the departed casino. There's like uh, half a dozen
0: major ones basically. Oh Goodfellas. any filmography that is way you know many times over uh yeah not not focusing. I mean you go he did it, you don't get much more on good fellas than you go.
1: No, um and, and I don't <laughs> so. think and I, I think Wolf of Wall Street is Framing device wise, because you have a charming anti-social protagonist, it's not even really a protagonist, but like an anti, not even really anti-hero, but just, a, well, I, you know, just your main character, essentially, you know, and it follows a similar formula of like rise and fall and, and he starts off being innocent and like, oh, I don't drink during the day and isn't that illegal and aren't we trying to get people money? And so it's once again, it's about temptation, seduction, fall, destruction. Um, sort of stuff, but it's not a mob movie. He's not in the mm-hmm. mob. He's just a crook. He's just a financial crook. And so I don't consider that a mob movie. Obviously, The Irishman is, but uh, yeah, so you're looking at five, six movies out of whatever you want to consider his full canon. He does did TV. He did episodes of Amazing Stories. I, the guy has been painted with his brush. I think what happened was he made the definitive mob movie, arguably. If not, if not Godfather or Godfather 2, it's Goodfellas.
0: Mm-hmm, for sure,
1: and what I would, at the very least, say is he made the definitive modern mob movie because of the one shots and because of the breaking the fourth wall and the metaness of it and the yeah the the flashiness that you were talking about. It it's like it's the the mob movie of the the end of the 21st century. Whereas good. You know, um, Godfather and Godfather Part Two. it feels more like a Sergio Leone epic. It feels like, you know, uh, Once Upon a Time in America or something like that. It feels like a larger scale. It's a 70s larger scale epic drama, almost from a bygone era. Whereas you watch those. I mean, just the pacing, the editing, the needle drops. You know, I mean, Godfather is famous for a lot of stuff. Uh, uh, Rolling Stones is not part of that, right? Like like mm-hmm. pop needle drops, Motown needle drops, uh, 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 you know, 50s crooner needle needle drops, uh, 70s needle drops, not a part of that. <laughs> so, you yeah. know, I, I think we forget that. I think he's been around so long and he's so established And this movie. Didn't just break a mold, it created a whole new mold that not only has he borrowed from, but everybody else has, like you said. But now it feels sort of ubiquitous as opposed to revolutionary, which is really what it was. Goodfellas was a revolutionary way. They've been making gangster movies since they've been making movies before there was sound. And there was nothing like Goodfellas before Goodfellas.
0: Yeah, and I think the reason... Yeah, and pretty much any movie that tackles the seedier underworld of, of the criminal element, whether it's organized crime or not, I mean... Owes something to Goodfell. Uh, Quentin Tarantino wouldn't have, you know, all of his movies are are dealing with the honor amongst thieves and kind of finding mm-hmm. like what's what's charismatic and what's you know uh, entertaining or or alluring about these, you know, Vincent Vega or uh, or whatever. And I think or the Reservoir Dogs and all of that. So I think that's really something that that fascinates uh, Scorsese as well. Is that he's really interested in trying to like find out what makes these people tick, like what motivates them to do these horrific things. And I think it's, you know, it's him coming from that Catholic perspective of like, well, you know that the eternal damnation is the price for this. So how do you get from point A to point B? And that takes many different forms, whether it's, you know, Henry Hill or Jordan Belfort or whatever. And I think what makes this one, in addition to all the style, what makes this one feel appropriately epic is that, we get we get basically the full Back to the Future experience. We go from the '50s to the '80s in in yeah. this movie, in this story. Like it tracks from '55 until like I think I think right right up to 1980. So it, you get the full picture. Whereas you know when Henry Hill is getting is starting out and like wants to be a gangster, as the famous line goes, he's only seeing like the immediate uh, the immediate. Satisfaction, the the you know, the women and the money and the drugs and the and the power and all this other stuff. And this movie gives you the full encapsulation of what that what's at the end of that story. And I think that's that's kind of what makes the ending so so powerful. Uh is that it doesn't, it doesn't give you that, it doesn't really give you a catharsis. He's not at the end being like, you know what, maybe that was a bad idea. He's like, oh, damn it, how do I get back to that? You know? Uh, well,
1: yeah yeah well I think what's interesting right is the movie is bookended perfectly where it doesn't exactly 100% begin because it begins at you know midway in the story cold open and then flips back to the past and mm-hmm. where he becomes really a part of that mob life is when he gets caught uh for the selling of the cigarettes and doesn't rat right and and that's when De Niro comes up to him who I don't know De Niro's in his 40s at this point is supposed to be like Twenty or something, which is ridiculous. I think but, that's the
0: same with Pesci as well, and I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I don't right. know about that, guys. I
1: don't know about that one, right? Uh, but we'll allow it, right? So it's I, better than de aging, like in the Irishman, was, where it's yeah, just yeah,
0: yeah, that that was very distracting.
1: Very distracting, yeah. And he says, you know, like you did a good job, like you got pinched. Everybody gets pinched, but you know, there's only two rules, like like basically, never rat on your friends. That's it, like. Don't rat on your friends and where does Henry end up? His first lesson is don't rat and he, he to save his own skin, he ends up being a rat. And even after all of that, even after his friends are dead uh, and or and or try to kill him, even after he's betrayed his mentor, even after all everything that we see, the whole destruction of and corruption of Karen, and Karen, you know, the whole thing, and everybody <laughs> knows. But after everything, after the whole chaos, after in and out of jail and and you know, having money and not having money and, and just, just the sheer insanity of where this movie ends up with the, the paranoia and the drug use and running from helicopters and, and the, the pacing of that movie where you really feel like you're going insane, where everybody ends up being a sweaty mess and just the disaster that this is that is this guy's life by the end of it. His closing remarks are. I can't cook good pasta. He, I mean, he's in wit pro. He's in witness protection. I can't cook good pasta. I, I have no life. My life is not flashy. And now I'm just some schnook like you. And he looks at the audience and calls the audience out for being losers. And that's where they, other than the the little flash of them firing the gun right in the audience's face in a mocking way, that's where Scorsese ends his movie, which is like. And that's the point, though. The point is the reason why we as the audience are so seduced by this person and by this life is because um, we feel ordinary. We feel the the movie is an escape for us as much as as that lifestyle was an escape for Henry Hill. So who are we to judge him? Because it's almost like Scorsese saying to his audience, got you. Like, like you, like I got you, you wanted this and you were just as seduced as he was. And, you know, kind of in your face, in your face to some extent, you know, like he really shoves it literally in your face. When Joe Pesci has a, a, a Tommy gun and is into the Ramones playing, I think it's the Ramones or Sex Pistols or one of them playing uh, uh my way. Yeah, um, I think it's uh,
0: Sid Vicious.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Sid Vicious. Yeah. And, um. I mean, it's just basic. It's basically a double middle finger to the audience of like, you cannot think you're better than this guy, because you wanted to be him, most of this movie, or be like him, or be a part of this world because you were seduced. And so, who who are you to judge, right? And on top of that, you know, most salvation narratives of of you know creation, temptation, uh, sin, fall, destruction they have redemption, they have restoration or recreation or renewal at the end. Right. I mean, it's like the archetypal story and that's what our three act movie structures pretty much built off of. Right. You have your inciting incident. You have the hero mm-hmm. at his lowest moment. You have the, the, the comeback, the resolution, you know, the, the 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 climax, the resolution, and all this sort of stuff, you know, the payoff and the, the denouement. That's is, this is
0: a big big shrug of a denouement. just like uh. yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's no redemption. There right, is no exactly. redemption, there is no renewal, there is no restoration. It's a Catholic movie that has no savior in it, there is no salvation, even by him telling the truth, even by him testifying his soul arguably, and his life are not saved because what's the after effect? You know, they got, he, he gets busted again. Right. And his wife divorces him. So he, like he, all of this was for nothing. And, and he couldn't mean, you know, you could argue that maybe he got a taste of salvation with wit, with wit pro but he but he just fell right back into it, like, you know, like a dog returning to his vomit. Right. So uh, it, it's and that's the one thing I would say about Scorsese is he's not very interested in saving his characters, because for the most part, and that's another reason why I'd argue against this being glorifying of violence, because if he glorif- was glorifying it, Robert, uh, they all would have got away with it. You know, it, it, they're yeah. all their lives end up in, they end up dead in prison or they end up in a gutter. Like Paulie's, like, I just don't want to die in prison. And he fucking dies in prison. He dies mm-hmm. in prison. And so there is no salvation for these people. I So I think that's the point. The point is like, you don't get out of the consequences for living this life. No matter who you are, no matter how smart you are, no matter how long you think you're getting away with them, eventually justice and judgment show up. And when that happens, everybody has to pay, right? So,
0: yeah, exactly. It's not like uh, the end of Ocean's Eleven, big swelling orchestral music, because they all like kind of trickle off,
1: <laughs> right? <laughs> like, yeah, the slow, it. yeah, the slow fade away from the Bellagio. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, it's it's the it's it's exactly what you're saying. It's um, you know, anyone. It's like I don't understand how you could get sucked into that this life. The answer is Goodfellas. It's like here, spend yes. two and a half hours in this guy's shoes. And then afterwards, Scorsese's like, all right, now get to confession. And uh, like, <laughs> forgive exactly me, father. Right. I watched Goodfellas. And I was like, for two and a half, to for, for like half the movie, I was like, oh, man, maybe I should look into that. I know. Envy. My, right? my mom knows a guy who knows a guy. That kind yeah. of thing. Like all Italian
1: families. Yeah, that's exactly right. Like, uh, we know a guy. You you nailed it. We know a guy. And that's, that's what's, that is where. I think he sort of says he at his best is so good, which is why I think this movie may be him at the peak of his powers. I know that's blasphemy, but I think this may be his best movie because a lot of times he does a lot of stuff and he's either so opaque in what he's doing by the end of it. You're like kind of, what's the point this, this, this felt like a, a a lesson or a treatise on nothing. I think the Irishman sort of like that, like, do it really need to be that long? Like, okay, it's about the end of life. And, Sort of, you could say, make arguments. It's about all these people, the reflection on their career and their fading star, and all these sorts of things. But didn't need to be that long. I don't, I don't think mm-hmm. so. This movie's pretty tight. It is, you know, it's not short, but it, it feels tight. It constantly moves. And the well, thing the is, is, is of story like story
0: it covers, yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah, for the amount of story it covers, it's really short. And the thing is, he makes us as the audience guilty of the same sin his characters are guilty of. Because Henry is seen, or all these characters, right? They see, they lust, they take for themselves. We as moviegoers, what are we doing if not just watching, if not being tempted by our eyes? And so just, like, just as in the movie, the characters are tempted by this life, we are being tempted by the movie itself. And we're yeah. guilty, if nothing else, for envy. At least for, you know, what we want, what most people want if they're being honest with themselves is they want the life without the consequences. If you could have his life without maybe the violence and the murder and some of the consequences, but if you could have the the clout that this guy, Henry Hill, has in his early 20s, te- late teens, walking into the swankiest club you've ever seen with some of the swankiest music, with a beautiful woman on your arm or a beautiful man on your arm, whoever you may be, and you're just—you are the bell of the ball. You are the 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 cock of the walk. You are the man, right? You are the woman. You are it. You're 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 the stuff. And every head turns, and everybody's giving you respect, and everybody's dapping you up, and everybody's you know coming by and giving you their well wishes, and you know people are genuflecting to you as almost as if you're an idol. Who the, Who doesn't want that? If they're being honest right. with themselves, <laughs> yeah. I mean, wouldn't you love to be able to, like, whoever you are out there, be able to, like, this is the hottest restaurant in town. Nobody can get in. I know the back way. I walk through the kitchen, (laughs) and the owner, you know, uh, will find a table that doesn't exist and put it right front row. The 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 table materialize materialized
0: for me wherever I go.
1: That's exactly (laughs) it. And whoever that is, whoever's up there, you know, I don't know, Lizzo or Bad Bunny or whoever people are listening (laughs) to these days, basically does a a a, 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 a dedication <laughs> directly to a performance for one in a crowded venue it becomes a performance for one because you know they recognize that i'm 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 a man or woman of power like if you're not tempted by that you're not, I don't think you're being honest with yourself what we're repulsed by is what it takes to get that and sustain that and maintain that and ultimately, how people end up losing that, which is either losing their life or going to prison or becoming a rat, and so uh, yeah, I, I, I think that's why this movie's it's pretty masterful, you know. In in and not only that, it's just it's it's harrowing, but at the same time, it's just fun. It's got that pop verve energy that mm-hmm. you were talking about. I mean, don't you think it's like kind of a it just sort of sings, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's I think for for me it's you know it's I'm curious what you what you thought of uncut gems if you've seen that because I feel like uh, that movie tries to suck you in in the same way but for me I think I was just nervous the whole time watching it so I didn't have the same effect that that Goodfellas has early on what do you think that 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 the Safdie brothers in that film because it kind of reminds me of Goodfellas in that respect do you think it's trying to do the same kind of thing
1: I think that's a very astute assessment. I saw that in theaters with a friend and, um, and I'm right there with you. It's not a bad movie, but I, I I found it. It's sort of like a postmodern Goodfellas in the sense that it's almost like anti-charm. Whereas Henry Hill is so charming. You're going
0: to squirm in your seat so much watching this thing. And I was, I was like, Oh my God, get me out of here.
1: Yeah. And, and, and our lead character is not going to be this super charming Gorgeous cheekbones, bright blue eyes, dark hair, Ray Liotta—just you know, at the peak of his powers for sure. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. And and it's not going to be him. It's going to be this disgusting, horrible, wretched person who cannot make a good decision to save his life. Not a good minor decision. Not a good major decision. Everything this guy does is wrong, and you're going to know it's wrong, and we're going to telegraph that it's wrong. And you know the shoe is going to drop, but you're not sure exactly when or exactly in what way. And maybe it won't. And so I'm right there with you. I, I felt, I think they borrowed elements of it. I think the Safety mm-hmm. brothers, you know, if you've seen Good Time, I think it's very similar where I think that they're, they really, I think, get off on making their audience nervous and uncomfortable. I think that's, I think that's like their whole genre. I think they're like whittling this little niche out for themselves, which is just like stress as movie. And whereas there's that chunk of time in Goodfellas where he, they're doing the drug running and the babysitter and all this sort of stuff but he's like spiraling out of control and you know uh the needle drops and all that sort of stuff uh that you have um I I I think that is supposed to put you on edge but the movie I mean even though it's violent there's like a there's a ease there's a finesse to Goodfellas. There's a finesse, even to the narration, even to the way that Ray Liotta reads his lines. In the narration. There's a smoothness to it. It does not exist in Uncut Gems. There's nothing right. smooth no. about it.
0: No, it's just yeah, it's jagged as hell. Uh, and and you know, to your point, I think the the performances in Goodfellas are are the kind that that make you you know even if you're intimidated by these men you're like man i'm impressed by what i'm seeing or like i can i i want to you know i feel like i want to earn their respect or or whatever you may have you and i think a lot of that you know in my research for this episode a lot of that probably comes from the fact that apparently according to joe pesci they did improv and ad-libs in the rehearsals for this movie and then uh scorsese and uh this the co-writer nicholas peleggi who also, uh, I think also wrote the book on which this is based. Um, yeah, they incorporated that in the script after after the fact, so that it, it felt more natural. It felt more attuned to uh, Pesci, De Niro, and Leota. and I think that that comes across in the in the you know in the finished product. And I think it's probably a a big part of why Pesci pops in this movie so much to the fact that. He won an Oscar the same year he was in Home Alone. He won the Academy Award for, for Goodfellas, <laughs> um, which I can't think of too. I mean, they're both pretty, they're both extremely violent as an adult. And I wouldn't let my my daughter watch either of them at this point. So I guess they have that in common. But other than
1: that. Well, I, what's amazing, right, is that like very quickly, we understand that um, Joe Pesci's character is, you know, Tommy is, a psychopath like he's he's a true psychopath but he is so funny and charming because he's he's almost doing the same shtick a little bit more foul language but he's he's doing a similar thing as to to what he kind of did with leo gets and lethal weapon yeah where he's just sort of this motor mouth kind of just hothead character uh home alone he's a little bit more he's a hothead but he's a little bit more laid back uh, that same, like, hothead, like, explosive temper, blah, blah, blah. But it's played here. Yeah, At first, it is kind of played for humor. And even when he has the whole issue with, like, uh, Billy Bats, Billy Bats is such an obnoxious character. And he, we've been so charmed by him that, yeah, even though it's very, very brutal at first, we're kind of on his side. We're kind of on Tommy's side. Uh, until you see the fullness of his brutality and a lot mm-hmm. of the people that we see him assault or murder or maim or insult are, char- are are like side characters people we don't really know but what Scorsese really does very smartly is he keeps cutting back to that card game and we have spider who's the super young kid who obviously would go on to play uh, uh, Michael I think or whatever his name is uh, from the Sopranos we see that young kid, we see the harassment, we see him verbally abuse this kid and harass this kid and maim this kid at some point. And you're like, Oh man, like he's starting to go too far. Right. He's starting to go too far. And we, we start to not be so much on Tommy's side and not to be as charmed by him as much as we start to be kind of menaced by him. And then by the time he kills that kid, even sort of accidentally, and then, doesn't really give a crap that he just killed this kid in cold blood even when the other mobsters are like what are you doing you just killed this guy and when the other mobsters are shocked that means like these other brutal killers are like shocked by what this guy just did yeah that means like you're way on a limb his only thing is like what i gotta dig a hole i've never dug a hole before well you, you gotta never use a shovel before like yeah i'll take care of the but like he's inconvenienced he has no empathy. No, there's not a moment that registers in his face that he just killed a young kid, and everyone's like, "What are we going to say to his mother?" Like, like, and you know, he's, he makes some sort of a line or oh, "You better tell her not to have an open casket funeral." or Something. I mean, just no empathy whatsoever. Yeah, and that's the moment we're not on his side anymore. I think as the audience member, where it's like he's gone too far, even for us, intentionally, so that, and yet, even when then he's murdered. It's a weird feeling where it's like even Ray Liotta's character was like it was among the Italians it was real greaseball shit it's just something that had to be done like we understood it right it had, it had something had to be done because of what happened to to Billy cuz Billy Bats was a made man and we you almost forget mm-hmm. that they murdered Billy Bats. yeah you yeah. You're like even though that's a big chunk of this movie and the, the knife and the 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 scene with uh, uh Scorsese's mom and like like you just he's that character is so dehumanized. It's just a corpse in a trunk. That's how the movie opens and it's just a corpse in a trunk. And it's just, and, 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 and yet like it's, it, that's masterful to like, we just watched a shocking piece of violence and just dealt with, like, they have to go bury him. Then months later, they got to go dig him up and, and they're puking. And it's like, it's very vivid stuff, but you kind of forget about it. And then bam, out of, literally bam out of nowhere, the consequence. And you as the right. audience member are now so far removed from his side that like, it's kind of sad to see him get his head blown off, but you're kind of relieved he's out of the movie and it's, it's like, and then what, and then what does that make you as the audience member? What does that make you that you look at that and you're like, yeah, he, he got what he deserved. You know? So it, it's, I think this movie is very slyly good at if you really, it, it like it forces you so strongly into the shoes of really it's villains because there are no good people in this movie. Uh, there are no good fellows, ironically,
0: uh-huh.
1: um, <laughs> which I think is also probably intentional, right? Like I understand the line comes from, it's what they Oh, He's a good fellow is what they said about each other. But that that's almost I- ironic. There are none of right. these are good people. There's not within a good their person. World, in this movie.
0: The, yeah. Within their world. I mean, that scene you mentioned, that's, that's just one of the many ways in which the movie kind of pulls the rug out from under you. And, and by keeping a lot of the uh, a lot of the I guess victims of of Tommy and and the rest of the characters early on, keeping them kind of vague or like impersonal, like it, it's you, I think the audience has a certain amount of deniability. We're like, well, well you know, we don't know what the situation yep. was. Maybe that person was worse. Or but when you see Tommy just flip out over over nothing, basically, yeah, uh, it's it's like yeah, you start to realize just oh, this is. This is just something they do on a whim sometimes. Just like it's yep. so normal to them that they're like, "Oh yeah, you know, there's a there's this." I think the scene where they're where they're burying them and they're like, "Oh, you know, there's an arm, there's a leg. What do you want?" Uh, you know, they're just uh, it's it's very it's very casual and just like a part of life for them. And I think that's where us the audience are like, "Oh wait a minute, no no, I didn't sign I didn't sign up for this. Yep. <laughs> I don't want these wanna, are not my we're, friends. We're accessories now."
1: yeah we're accessories these are not my what you realize is that you're now in the pen and you think the tiger is your friend but it's still a wild animal that's what you realize is that is that the movie tricks you into thinking that these people are your friends and then it reveals to you no 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 no. they'd kill you too right they and, and and that's obviously what happens is you know they they you know, I mean, it's I I there's some argument. I've I've had this debate uh, with my significant other about when Karen is is uh, goes to to Jimmy, and is you know uh, after the bust after the major bust at the end of the film, and he's running some just every kind of scam. You know, with the pinball machines and uh, dresses, and he's just I don't know what he's doing uh and he's like uh you know well we got some really good dresses why don't you go get some for you and your mom and right right there right there and we have this debate about whether or not that seems to represent her paranoia or whether or not he was really going to kill her in that moment or or at least torture her to try to figure out what henry had maybe said to to the feds uh what do you think about that do you think that you know you know the famous scene do you think that mm-hmm. was jimmy was going to kill karen or do something to her, snatch her, grab her, have his guys rough her up? Or did you, do you think that was just to signify like her, her realizing just how alone they are, her, her, to represent her paranoia?
0: I think it's probably more to represent her paranoia, but it's also the fact that he couldn't do that pretty much at any time. That it's mm. just that he, he, he has all the power in that situation. And I think, I think it's it's really just kind of yeah to illustrate the fact that that sh- she realizes how vulnerable she really is
1: so if not at this time anytime right. right right exactly So if not literally now at any moment you know just and with just like 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 uh Henry says like your killer comes to you with a smile it's someone you know it's in it's it's, it's mm-hmm. your friend it's it's you know, somebody getting breakfast with you and be like, Oh, Hey buddy, how you doing? How you holding up? Need some money, you know? And they're the whole while they are planning on putting a bullet in your head and uh, we're in in a very remorseless fashion. And so I think, yeah, I I guess in summation, you know, like we could go through all the famous lines and all the stuff everybody knows. But I I just think that when you're talking about a movie that is arguably perfect or, you know, uh, or some people consider a perfect film that is so wildly influential that is that is arguably the best movie made by one of the greatest directors of all time, if not at least modern times. Um, yeah, like I started off, what what could you say? And then as it turns out, it's so thematically rich material, yeah. that you have hours worth of material. You know, you don't even have to. We never even really delved into what the real plot is, or all the famous scenes, or you know, we just we just sort of lightly touched upon. The, the movie itself but because the themes are so rich and I
0: think I think that yeah exactly I think that kind of is befitting a movie this sort of uh renowned and beloved to the fact that I you know I, I don't think people need to hear us breaking down beat for beat what's happening I think kind just kind of putting it in context uh with you know the current cinema landscape its influence you know it's our own interpretations of it I did have a before we started winding down I did have two questions one why what do you to what do you attribute the fact that dances with wolves won best picture over good <laughs> first of all is it because do you think the academy was just thrown off by the violence and all the stuff that you maybe they they felt guilty and they're like we can't give it to that movie i had to say you know six hail marys after i left the theater um, <laughs> what, what is your your read on that first of all
1: well, we, you know, we covered Dances with Wolves because it was also a, a hit movie. as was one of the top grossing films of 1990. So we covered it. And um, by and large, I mean, that movie was was huge uh, uh, financially and critically at the time. And uh, it was really seen as kind of Kevin Costner going to the next level as a filmmaker and all these sorts of things. And he was the Hollywood it guy and all this sort of stuff. I also believe, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was an adaptation of a book as well. Uh, which was a book that had been popular in the 80s. I, I could be wrong about that. It's been a long time. Yeah, since yeah never... it is. A 1988 yeah.
0: book by yeah. Michael Blake, so,
1: yeah. Yep. So I I think if I had to guess, because I was also fairly young at the time and the Academy obviously is not very transparent, even to this day, of why they make the decisions they make or who even is really a part of it completely. Uh, what I would say is I think... Especially in that era, whether it be '89, Driving Miss Daisy, or all these sorts of things, they really were going for commercially successful films. And Goodfellas was not commercially all that successful. It, I mean, it made money, but it didn't make a lot of money. It wasn't mm-hmm. one of his most successful films right out the gate. It was critically adored for the most part, but it didn't make a ton of money. And I think that's some of it. I think it's also was an extremely violent and vulgar and profane movie to your point. And I think that, you know, in the nineties, most of the voting body were probably people who were watching movies in the thirties and forties. And I'm not joking when I say that because the body tends to skew older, especially at that time. And so you have a lot of old Hollywood people voting on new movies and i think dances with wolves is was was a modern example of a classic western i mean what more classic hollywood is white guy falls for native even though the native was also a white woman which is sort of of paradoxical like what are we really saying here but that's you know like guy learns the value of uh, another culture and it's kind of progressive sort of you know especially at the time and blah 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 and it's sweeping vistas and landscapes and it's long and it's kind of self-serious but yet charming but yet commercially viable and so when i look at these two movies I, i i think when we think about what the academy awards really are and have historically really been of course, Dances with Wolves won, you know? <laughs> I think the legacy now is that we we find that hard to believe because Goodfellas have such a, a renowned legacy and Dances with Wolves right. doesn't really. But I think if you really think about how the Academy makes decisions, especially, I mean, even up to the last, what, two years maybe? Um, maybe five of her being generous. Like, that's ex- that's exactly what they would have gone for, don't you think?
0: Yeah, it's the safe choice. It's uh, I think lately they you know it's the green book of 1990. Yes. I guess let's put Bingo. it there. That's um, exactly right. <laughs> and I think lately they've just kind of been alternating back and forth between this safe, obvious choice or something like Parasite or something like Moonlight. So I think I think we're getting a little more variety. And I don't you know. I guess that's just a testament to the uh, the voting body and the membership just kind of finally getting with the times.
1: Also, uh, for, for our generation, Martin Scorsese, especially with his some of his more recent comments over the last few years about certain things, Martin Scorsese almost, and this is kind of weird. This is kind of weird to say because he's speaking out against Marvel, but Martin Scorsese has kind of become old Hollywood establishment at this point. Mm-hmm. And even though it's like it's entirely bizarre to say that Marvel and Disney are not Hollywood establishment, <laughs> right? <laughs> but um But he really, in 1990, he really wasn't. Uh, You know, we have to remember the context of where he came from. I mean, he's making gritty, hard-hitting, street-level, low-budget, what we today would call indie movies about, like, obscenity, basically. Obscene characters, Mm -hmm. obscene parts of the world. And so he was critically lauded and some of those were commercially viable, but he was not Steven Spielberg, somebody who came up at about the same time. He wasn't that USC crowd. He wasn't Lucas Spielberg or even a carpenter. He was he was East Coast. He was something else. And so I think even by 90, if you really look at Goodfellas, is like at, up until this point, it's kind of the slickest movie he had ever made, you know, uh, as far as like budget production, uh, film stock, like it's just, it's the kind of the cleanest, Slickest, arguably the most commercial in a way, movie he had made up to that point, other than maybe *The Color of Money*. Mm -hmm. But even then, that's got a weird grime to it that this one doesn't have, at least as far as how it was shot. So he's still uh, a young filmmaker on the rise who needs Roger Ebert to laud his movies because a lot of people think they're too violent or too obscene. If you if you go back and you read a lot of like Roger Ebert's early reviews of of scorsese like there was a, a film critic group that basically got behind him and was like this is the guy and anointed him because the rest of hollywood was like that's the weird guy that makes those those kind of obscene violent movies and we don't know what to do with him." and so i think yeah of course they're going to go for the matinee idol with movie star looks who's directing his first film and basically making a a western it makes perfect sense. yeah and
0: it, and it took till the early to mid-2000s with the uh... Gangs in New York, The Aviator, and then finally The Departed for Hollywood to be like, all right, I guess you're like bingo, you know, the distinguished like elder statesman of Hollywood now. So we got to give you one of these while we can. So let's let's you know, and you know, The Departed is is uh, you know was a solid a solid choice to do that, I guess, especially bingo. considering that it builds on Goodfellas and his kind of uh, history with the genre. But all right, right so there, my-
1: but you know, <laughs> that's a that's a remake.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Exactly.
1: So that's I mean, what is he awarded for? He's awarded for a remake, and the departed was also a very commercially viable film. Yep. So what do we choose to reward him for? we finally relent and be like, okay, we reward him for the most Hollywoody kind of movie. You know what I mean? So
0: exactly. Yeah, that's what they always do. They always award, they always give awards to most of the most of the time deserving people for the wrong work. That's kind of yes. the Oscars thing. Yep. often. Uh, I mean, Make you goods. know, Kate Winslet got one for the reader. Well, who remembers the reader or cares <laughs> the reader? Like, what the hell is that? Right. It's, the, it's, it's that, it's that thing that like, you know, I, I mean, I saw the reader and I don't remember it. So right. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's that thing that everybody remembers when you have an Oscar, but nobody really cares or remembers what it's for. Bingo. So I think it's, it's kind of that in action uh, with Chris Sassy. And so my other, my other final question and then, and then we'll, I'll throw it over to you, is uh, the, about another 1990 movie. So uh, Nicholas Pelleggi, Pile- uh, I'm probably mispronouncing that, was married to Nora Ephron, who wrote the same year that Goodfellas came out, My Blue Heaven, which is sort of inspired by Henry Hill's life. Have you seen My Blue Heaven? And or should we consider that as a Goodfellas sequel of sorts?
1: You know, that's one of those things that floats around the internet, you know, like film, Twitter, and everyone's like, well, if you love Goodfellas, you, know you got to watch, fellas, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got to watch My Blue Heaven, because it's actually this unofficial sequel, and blah, 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 blah. I have right. seen My Blue Heaven. I've seen it, uh, I saw it when it originally came out on VHS, rented it from a video store, or at least my parents did, um, and I've seen it on cable, off and on. Uh, it doesn't really show up very much anymore. Every once in a while, it'll show up for streaming, or like Amazon Prime or something, but it's not really it doesn't it's not really a cable cable film. It's not one of those movies that's like maintained any sort of zeitgeist kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um I think it's terrible. I think it's a terrible movie and I, <laughs> I I I I think it's 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 one of those odd movies where I think Steve Martin is completely wrong for the role. I think he's an extremely talented guy uh in certain things. It's a weird uh,
0: at best it's a weird casting choice.
1: It's a very weird casting choice and 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 um you know uh if I'm not mistaken because I'm pulling from ancient history now I think Rick Moranis is in that as well. Yep. I think he plays the FBI guy John Cusack. Neighbor. Yeah. It's so
0: Like that's the th- thing. For me it's uh, you know that's that's a movie that my wife and my mom both really lie, love and I'm like it's okay. I mean I like all three of those actors so I'm kind of by default, not gonna hate it just because it has Steve Martin, Rick Moranis, and Joan Cusack. So, but I know I'm right there with you. It's weird. It's a weird movie, and it's not starring the people you would think it would star.
1: No, you know, and I, I think about it, I was I know you're yeah I was I was thinking about Rocky Five that came out in 1990 or Rocky mm-hmm. yeah Rocky Five came out in 1990 and you know Stallone is almost doing an, a SNL impression of Rocky Balboa in that movie. And I feel like Steve Martin is almost doing an SNL sketch version of a mobster. Yeah. And he's, totally. he's, he's playing it like in the most broad sort of way. And I, I, it, it, it it's, it's, it's very off-putting. And I think all of my problems with it come back to Steve Martin, his casting and his performance, I mm. think. And honestly too, there is this, um, I don't, this is a weird little quirk with me. There's some really good looking movies made in the late eighties, even comedies that that, they just look good, but I don't know if it was a changeover in cameras. I don't know if they were using up old eighties film stock as we were heading into a new decade. I don't know if it's a matter of the remasters that we're getting. I don't know what it is, but there's an era from about 1990 to probably about, 92 93 somewhere in there where a lot of these movies they just they look and sound and feel like crap and they even did at the time i don't know i like it's i don't i've said this before in our podcast and i can't quite articulate it in a way where i feel like anybody knows what the heck i'm talking about but if you look at uh, uh my blue heaven or you look at clifford Which is a little bit later, or you look at um drop dead Fred, they all have this weird, cheap look to them. This weird, it's 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 film, they would have been shot on film, but it's not high-quality film, right? And and they just look like crap. And they don't there's no other era of of film where big, bigger budget mainstream movies have that cheap look. They look like They look like bad sex comedies from the 80s, like (laughs) mid-80s, but they're big-budget movies with stars in them from the early 90s. And by the time we get to, like, like, you know, Terminator 2 doesn't look like that. Jurassic Park doesn't look like that. There's a lot of other movies that don't look like that. But there's that mid-budget comedy, even some dramas. They just look like crap. And they still, you know know what I mean? They have this weird sheen on them, this diffuse...
0: I feel like I need to do some research now after this, after this recording, but there is a, um, when I was growing up, we had the movie, It Could Happen to You with uh, Nicolas Cage, Bridget Fonda. Yeah. Yep. And, and I think there's a promo at the beginning of that movie, or maybe I have, I also have, this is not really related movie, except for what I'm about to say. Uh, Wolf, the 1994 yes. werewolf movie with Jack Nicholson yes. and Michelle Pfeiffer. I have that on DVD still. And in the beginning of one of those movies, I don't remember which one, but somewhere on there, the, it's like a, an ad for uh, the the enhanced picture and or whatever. And you can kind of see like you know the line wave across the picture as the as the colors get sharper and the image gets clearer. And so now I'm wondering if like right around that, because both of those movies were like were 90, 1994. As was yeah. Clifford, and so I'm I'm thinking like right around there if Hollywood just like started using different different film stock or or the process got sort of uh, updated or what was happening because maybe there's, that's that's sort of because that's right in the in the era that you're talking about too. I would uh, love I for, I for you to, to find that about.
1: answer out for me because yeah, absolutely. there's just this weird window of time and when, like again. can't say well it's old there's movies that predate it that are older than than 1990 that you know or 86 87 88 of similar or smaller budgets that do not have that same look to them so i don't know once again was it just a lower quality film stock was it um something about like the post-production work that was done on it or color correction was it was it you know, I understand why a movie from like 97 looks different, looks better because now you're into the era of like software and, and all that sort of stuff. But, right, but why did we have this degradation of film at some point? Why, why do, why did movies trend to clear and clear picture even on say VHS? This isn't just a VHS ish, I- issue. It's a film issue. It's a film quality. It's the master. There's something yeah. wrong with these masters. And I don't, and they looked bad when they came out. There's just this ugly period of Hollywood, it's, and My Blue Heaven even, smack dab in the middle of it. And it's not that long of a period of time,
0: right? It's not even like a graininess. It's like a it's no. muted. Something yes. about it is muted, like the brightness is turned down, or like the, the I don't know. It's I, I know what you're talking about though, and I it's it's true. I I don't really know what the the reason there is, but I, I, I we went on that whole
1: tangent, ju- the whole cinephile tangent, just to say this. Any movie that has that look, I I instantly am repulsed by it. Yeah. <laughs> even back in the day, even as a kid. So I also, I just want to put a little asterisk by what I'm saying, because it says you know, it's a terrible movie. I don't know if it's terrible, truly as terrible as I think it is. I do think Steve Martin's wrong for the role. But I also think there's something just about the way the movie looks. And, so, you know, Goodfellas came out the same year. It doesn't look like that. Right, yeah. so um, I I, I love to can, I mean maybe you've got the budgets up between the two. I don't know what the budgets are, but I don't think they could be that dramatically different.
0: No, they're they're pretty close. I think they're both like twenty pretty something up. million or whatever. Yeah. So
1: what 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 is the problem? And so I I just have a hard time with those those enjoying those movies regardless of genre. So maybe it's just my weird quirk. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe your wife. Uh, and mother-in-law or mom <laughs> are right, and my blue heaven is as a great '90s comedy classic. Uh, judging by its uh, some of the scores I'm seeing in front of me, I don't think that to be true. But <laughs> uh, who knows? I could be wrong. I could be wrong.
0: Yeah, and and it's you know Scorsese would be the one that would you know that would work as hard as possible to make his movie look as good as it possibly can mm-hmm. on film. I mean, he's obviously since then become such a, a historian and such a kind of steward for the old school filmmaking process that it would make sense that if he would spend the extra time and effort to make sure his movie looked better than My Blue Heaven <laughs> <laughs> or other movies of the year. I mean, obviously yeah. <laughs> it's weird to, to talk about these, these two movies that are that are connected uh, in their writers who were married uh and uh and both about based on the same book about the same real life person but couldn't be more different in every other conceivable way um it's just like yeah it's like the the uh the b-side to goodfellas basically I guess is my blue heaven
1: it's an interesting footnote in history like you said it's interesting thought experiment in in the words of our mutual friend David Rosen it's an interesting puzzle piece maybe
0: Absolutely. Uh, or
1: it's a weird, it's a weird, like you said, it's a weird quirk of film history. Uh, and, you know, we, we probably got more out of the subject than most people ever have.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's the first time my blue heavens been brought up on a podcast in possibly ever <laughs>
1: <laughs> for that length. Yes. Yes.
0: Yes, definitely. <laughs> um, so Jason, uh, if there's nothing else to talk about for Goodfellas, Tell people where they can find you and binge movies on social media.
1: Well, I think we could go on and on about it forever, but we think we've gone on long enough. Uh, yeah. You can find us at binge movies on Twitter where, where you find our podcasts, wherever podcasts are found. Uh, Apple Podcasts is where most people find us. If you do listen to the show and you do like the show, you can leave us a five-star review at, as you should for crooked table that, I mean, you know every podcast you listen to is shilling for that five star review because it really does help the show out. You know, and uh, it gets it potentially seen by more people, which makes it uh, gives a little incentive to continue doing the show. Because as fun as these conversations are, uh, everything uh, uh, Robert's going to have to do to make me sound ten times smarter than I really am <laughs> uh, is it's going to be a lot of work. So <laughs> so leave him a five star review. Leave us a five star review. Uh, if you don't mind, yeah, and just, you know, and wherever, if you got a podcast app, if you're on Android, wherever, wherever you get your podcast, you can find us. Uh, we're on Twitter. We're on dot uh, com backslash binge movies. You can follow us there. Uh, we, we all, we offer sponsored reviews too. So, you know, we've covered a lot of movies so far. We have every movie we've covered on our letterbox. We have what's coming up in the show on our Letterboxd and we do some written reviews and a bunch of different stuff on there as well. Um, so if you want to see what we've covered, that's probably the easiest spot uh, to look for. it. You can also always search in your podcast app, type in the movie on our show, and it'll it'll, it'll populate whether or not we've done an episode on it. Um, and if you're like, hey, I like the show and I really like these guys to cover blank, you can sponsor an episode, kind of jump the line, uh, guarantee that we we talk about what you want. So you can find that also uh, on there's a sponsor button on our Podbean site, bingemovies.podbean.com. And we just started offering something really fun. Uh, we, of course, we are uh, the last standing uh, video store at the last frontier of home video. Uh, and we're offering uh, a membership. You can, if you want to be, because sort of an ongoing basis, support the show for $3.99 a month. You sign up and you get a variety of stuff. You'll get a thank you on the show. You get a little special shout out. You can get a feature presentation review of any one film we haven't covered before. Uh, And the main thing here, we get some uh, trading cards as well, uh, some throwback uh, movie, TV, nostalgic trading cards. Don't eat the gum. That's my recommendation. Don't eat the gum. We'll ship it to you wherever you are. And the main thing is you get a personalized video store, uh, video club, depending on what part of the world you're from, card uh binge movies membership card laminated and everything legit card stock laminated handwritten personalized uh you get a membership number and that entitles you to all of your benefits it's just 399 a month that's a way you can directly support the show and uh yeah just give us a follow give us a subscribe and uh, give us a chance check us out uh we're not for everybody but the people who we are for seem to love the show quite a bit, and we're grateful for all of them. So, uh, I'm I'm thankful for just being here. This is a good podcast, and I'm excited to see where Crooked Table goes in the future. And very grateful for the opportunity, and thankful that you 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 came on our show too, Robert. You're a great guy, great podcaster, and uh, I am much in your debt. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Well, thank you so much, and it was uh, it was a pleasure to have you on here. And hopefully, you know, I I kind of been teasing on social media that things are happening on with Crooked Tail podcast behind the scenes, and we're kind of evolving as well. So wherever, wherever the future takes us, uh, you're absolutely welcome back anytime. And, and hopefully I'll pop on binge movies another time soon. We can keep that keep that going. Um, Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah, you're in the short list of guests. You know, we're not going to eliminate you from cinematic history. You're in the short list of guests that we'd love to have back. So (laughs) you, you're welcome uh, to come on anytime, man. You did a great job for us. You are, like I said, I think, look, I'm preaching to the choir. If you're listening to Crooked Table right now, then you know that regardless of whatever Robert's done or he's going to do or however the format may change or how he may tweak some stuff here or there whatever he's got going on you know it's going to be good you know it's going to be quality and you know it's going to be very very soothing with that just very soothing voice that you have my friend
0: I didn't realize I had such a soothing voice I'm gonna to have to you, do like ASMR ASMR listening.
1: buddy that's that's let's for let's let's get a little side hustle going for you podcast <laughs> film from a fresh angle. yeah there you go <laughs> You're one of the good guys, man. You're one of the good guys on film Twitter. And, uh, thanks Jason uh, yeah, you're you're positive and you got a great positive podcast, and you and I both know that can be very, very rare for what we do. So absolutely. Uh, it's been an absolute honor to uh, speak with you a handful of times now. I hope we get to do it. Your place or mine preferably both. How's that sound?
0: Sounds good. make room in the uh, what is it the storage closet
1: you're in? Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. If you, you know, if you don't mind getting a little uh, elbow to elbow with a six foot four Italian guy uh, in Akron, Ohio, (laughs) then you're you're, come on in, buddy. Water's warm.
0: (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Thanks, Jason. That was our chat about Goodfellas from 1990, obviously directed by Martin Scorsese. Big thanks to Jason from binge movies for bringing Goodfellas to the table what a great conversation it was, uh, getting to dig into this movie with him. As for the Crooked Table podcast, as I mentioned, this will be the last episode of the, air quotes, Crooked Table podcast. The feed will be Close Watch with Robert Dennis Jr. upon the next episode being posted. Uh, that is going to actually be about um, the movie Field of Dreams. It's going to be a talk with Darren Lundberg from NostalgiaCast, so stay tuned for that in a couple of weeks. Please find me on Twitter at Crooked Table, Instagram at the same handle, and at CrookedTable.com. And uh, for now, I've been Rob. Keep it crooked, everybody, and we'll see you on the other side. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved.
1: <laughs>